The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Isaiah 53, Philippians 2. Isaiah 53, Philippians 2. We are doing a series called Unexpected. Uh, there are announcements in your bulletin, and uh, you can look at those. Uh, we didn't have video announcements this morning. You can follow along. Last week, uh, Chase was here in my absence. Stephen and Julia sent their greetings to you. We were able to visit with them in New York City last weekend, attend the church that they'll be at, and uh, take them to dinner. So just a great time seeing them in their own turf, so to speak. Uh, unexpected Savior last week with Chase. Unexpected Servant this week. And then I'll preach on Unexpected Sacrifice next week as well. Things that are unexpected. Isaiah chapter 53. Beginning in verse 1, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hid their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. And he was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Father, as we have worshipped in song, as we've worshipped in thinking of your love for us, now as we look at the word, we pray that we would worship you through that. We thank you for sending your son as a servant, a servant who gave his life on our behalf. We pray that we will find peace in him, in Christ's name. Amen. Christmas is filled with unexpected events. I mean, think back to the first Christmas story. There was the unexpected announcement to Mary. There was the unexpected confirmation to Joseph. There was the unexpected announcement to the shepherds. There was the unexpected visit by the shepherds to the Holy Family. There was the unexpected birth of Christ in Bethlehem. There was the unexpected appearance of Magi several months later. There were the unexpected gifts brought by the Magi to the Christ child. There was the unexpected confirmation in the temple by the older folks of Anna and Simeon. Lots of unexpected things happen at Christmas time. Happens in your world, happens in my world, happens with your family, happens in my family, and it certainly surrounds the first Christmas story. As you know, I love history, I love studying history, and uh, someone sent me a, a video clip that, uh, of an unexpected event during World War I. To, to set the stage, this is a true event, you can chase it down, you can Google it up and take a look at it, uh, not while the film's showing, but later at home. But, but it, it, it's, uh, it's Christmas Eve, 1914. The Allies and Germans are in trench warfare. World War One, World War One was trench warfare, and they are on the front and they're fighting one another. And then the unexpected happened. True event, World War One, Christmas Eve. Watch this video. Jenkins, unclean. Night.
Otto. Please meet you, Otto. Freut mich. Rose, she's called. Um, it's schön. Um, it's schön. on Christmas Eve begin singing out Silent Night. And history tells us when the dawn came, soldiers from both trenches came up and they began to pop up and they met one another on the front. And for four hours, there was peace. For four hours, enemies played football together. For four hours, they exchanged medals. And for four hours, they exchanged hats. And for four hours, the war stopped. That's what Isaiah 53 is about. Isaiah 53 is about the one who could bring peace. Isaiah 53 is about the one who can end all wars. Isaiah 53 is about the one who ends the war in the soul of every man. Isaiah 53 is all about the one who came as the suffering servant, totally unexpected. Just as peace breaks out on a battlefield and is totally unexpected, likewise, the one who came as a servant and gave his life for us brings to us peace that's totally unexpected through one who came as a Messiah. 
And so when Isaiah the prophet writes 700 years before the birth of Christ, 700 years before the advent of Christ, he writes in poignant detail prophecies that would be fulfilled in Christ. And so you hold in your hand a word that is inspired, a word that's an errand. You hold in your hand in Isaiah 53 prophecies 700 years before they were fulfilled. Another confirmation of the word of God that you hold in your hand as being that which is true. 700 years is before Columbus discovered America. That's how long ago it would have been to put chronology that we might understand together. And so as Isaiah begins to prophesy about the one who's to come, the one who would be Israel's Messiah, he writes not about a king who would reign on a throne, not about one who would hold a scepter, but one whose hands would be stapled to a cross. And he writes about one who would come not riding on a horse, not one who would look like Hollywood, but one who would look like just the rest of us. And so when Isaiah writes about the Savior, he writes about a suffering servant. He begins by writing about the poverty of the servant. He begins by writing about that which he experienced. Look at verses 2 and 3. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched to ground. A tender shoot is that which is young. It's a new growth on a tree, a plant, a suckling. It it talks about humble beginnings. A root out of parched ground, not a magnificent oak, not a towering redwood, not even a blossoming crepe myrtle that we see in central Texas, but just a root sticking out of the ground, a humble beginning. Scriptures say, nor that his appearance, we would be attracted to him through his appearance. This is not George Clooney or Hugh Jackman or, or Matthew McConaughey. This is just a normal dude. Kind of. Kind of. You see, his appearance, his physical appearance is one thing, but who he is is a whole other thing. And what we see when Isaiah portrays the one who would come as a servant is that he was totally different than anyone. He was unexpected. It's really unexpected that triumph could come out of such great tragedy. And so we read in verses 2 and 3 how he would come, what he would look like, and how he would be despised, and how he would be forsaken, and how he would be a man of sorrows. And so what we see is that when this one would come, the suffering servant would come, he he would be introduced to the world as one not that you would look upon and say, there he is, because of the way he stands out. But he wouldn't quite normally. You know, I've often thought if I were placed in charge of the advent of the Savior, if, if you were the one who were an event coordinator, you're a corporate coordinator, and, and your job is to plan the celebration of the entrance of God to the world, what would you do? I mean, imagine that. I, I mean, you get to plan one event. The event you get to plan is the entrance of Jesus, God's Son, into the world. How would you do that? If you had all the resources in the world at your disposal, how would you do it? Uh, Maybe you were here when I preached a sermon about uh, two years ago on the uh, London Olympics. I used that as an illustration. I'd like to use it again. I I mean, if you were planning the advent of the Savior, maybe you would plan it kind of like they planned the London Olympics. The Olympics were held there in 2012. They were seven years in planning. Seven years in planning. The cost of the Olympics to Britain, including the construction of new facilities, was in excess of 14 billion, that's with a B, 14 billion dollars. I mean, it was quite an extravaganza. There were new stadiums built, new venues built, and then there was the opening ceremony that was quite spectacular. They say it was the most spectacular of all Olympic ceremonies in the history of the Olympics. 
The opening ceremony alone cost an excess of $50 million. One night of entertainment over $50 million. And it was an absolutely amazing event. If you watched it on TV, maybe you remember a couple of these pictures and a couple of things that you saw. Tens of thousands of man hours, tens of millions of dollars, seven years in planning, a ceremony to provide the memory of a lifetime for those that were present, as well as the hundreds of millions of viewers from nations around the world to watch the opening celebration of the Olympics. Now you get to plan the arrival of the Savior. Jesus is coming to earth. You've been given the privilege to plan it. Who would have the audacity to invite him to a barnyard? Who would say, here's the opening celebration and ceremony of God becoming flesh, coming to dwell among us, and will bring you into a pigsty. And here's the opening celebration, not surrounded by cameras that will display him to millions and hundreds of millions of people around the world, but to a few blue-collar shepherds who would come to the royal family and then to Anna and Simeon in the temple. Who would plan it that way? You see, when we read the words, Emmanuel, God with us, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. When we read these words in Isaiah that he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the ground, you see the poverty of our Savior. He had no stately form or majesty. The entrance of our Savior into the world was quite humble. J. Vernon McGee writes it this way. He says, There in the stable, which was no more than a cave in a makeshift nursery, Mary brought forth her firstborn son. The first breath he drew was the air of a stable. He came from the atmosphere of heaven to the air of a stall. He departed from the presence of angels and arrived in the presence of animals. He came down from the light of the Father's house to the darkness of man's born. He gave up the halls of eternity to enter a stable of maternity. It was a long way from the joy of heaven to the sorrow of earth. All the way he came to rescue man from hell. Is this the kind of welcome the world accords the God-man? Celebration of tens and millions of dollars or... Just born in a stable, in a simple way. You see, when God entered the world, when Isaiah 53 writes about it, when when Paul writes about it in Philippians chapter 2, when the Gospels write about it, we see there's no fanfare. There are no adoring worshipers other than these shepherds. And a mother and a father who've been given a message by God. Well, Isaiah moves on and he moves from the poverty of the servant to the passion of the servant. His passion is the passion week when he gave his life on us. And if you write in your Bibles, there are ten times in verses four through six where the word our, we, or us occurs. You see, he came for you and he came for me. He came as our substitute. He came on our behalf. Our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. We esteemed ourselves stricken, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgression, crushed for our iniquity, the chastening of our well-being fell upon him by his scourging we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way the lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall upon him over and over and over the reminder is the death of jesus was not for himself but for us 
over and over the reminder of, of Isaiah is he gave his life for you. He gave his life for us. He gave his life for man. Over and over and over again, that's what we read. And Isaiah writes about the passion of Christ, and it's a poignant reminder to us that he came on our behalf. His vicarious suffering, that is, in place of us, in our place, is what he did. One of my favorite movies on World War II is a movie entitled To End All Wars. You might jot it down and go to Netflix or Amazon Prime, wherever you get your movies. To End All Wars. It's a great movie. It's based on the book Miracle on the River Kwai. Many of you have seen an earlier movie, Bridge Over the River Kwai. It's a story of Scottish soldiers who have been forced by Japanese captors to labor on a jungle railroad. And everything has disintegrated into barbarous behavior where the Scottish soldiers would steal from one another just to survive. They would steal one another's food, etc., etc. And on one day, something happened. When all the soldiers returned from their day of work in the jungle, there was always a shovel count. They counted the number of shovels. The Japanese sergeant did it day after day, week after week, month after month, to make sure all the tools had been returned. On this particular day, the sergeant scouted out, there's a shovel missing, there's a shovel missing. And the commanding officer looked at the Scottish soldiers who were standing there and said to them, if you do not, whoever took the shovel, if you don't return it, I will begin to kill each of you. There are about a hundred Scottish soldiers there one by one. He screamed out louder, I will begin to kill you. He raised his rifle to point at the first young man in line. And then from the middle of the pack came an emaciated man and he came and he knelt down before the Japanese officer. And he grabbed one of the shovels that the others that the sergeant was holding to say a shovel is missing and began to beat him without any mercy. And as a Scottish soldier is on the ground drawing his last breath in the scene in the movie, the sergeant who's returned to the hut where the shovels are comes running out. And he screams, it was a miscount, it was a miscount, it was a miscount. I counted wrong. But he's too late. The next scene, the Scottish soldier who had voluntarily given his life for all the men, for he had not stolen the shovel. But so that all the men were not executed, he gave his life, saying he was guilty when he was not. And from that moment on in that camp, if you study the history, there was peace among the men there because one gave his life on behalf of the others. My friend, do you see the analogy? Do you see the picture? The picture of the suffering servant who gave his life that we might have peace if it was in a Japanese POW camp or in the trenches of warfare in World War I. When someone gives their life on behalf of another, there's peace when it's Christ that gives his life. Isaiah moves on past the, from the portion of the, or from the passion of the Savior, but Christ without God took upon himself our punishment in order that he might expiate our guilt and do away with our punishment. And we see the passivity of our Savior. That was, he was passive. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed, afflicted. He did not open his mouth like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. And as our Savior stood before those who were accusing him, the gospel say this prophecy came to fruition. We see him standing before trial. Are these things true? And our Savior remains silent. 
His only response is, it is as you say. My kingdom is not of this world. You see the passivity of our Savior. As I look at that, I want to cry and say, call down fire from heaven or send angels to defend yourself or exact a little revenge. But that's not why our Savior came. Our Savior came to give his life. In fact, unless you see the cross overshadowing the cradle, we've lost the real meaning of Christmas. I mean, when you look at the cradle, you see the cross overshadowing it because that's the purpose of the advent of our Savior. The reason he came was to give his life on your behalf and my behalf. And all the way from the stable, we see the cross. We hear Simeon talking about the sword that will pierce the soul when he talks to Mary. We see the wise men bringing gold and frankincense, which are gifts fitting for a king. But the unexpected gift was myrrh, which was used as an embalming fluid at times. And all the way from the, from the early youth of our Savior, we see that death is all over him. The smell of death is in the stable. And finally, we read of the portion of our Savior. If you look at the last verse of Isaiah 53, it says he was given a portion among the great. I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured him of himself to death. In fact, if you back up to chapter 52, the last verse there, it says he will sprinkle many nations. This is 52:15. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. You see, when they see the Savior exalted in all his glory, even kings will bow down in the presence of the King of Kings. What a picture. Can you see that? In the presence of the Savior, the King of Kings, kings will bow down. We sing a song with that, one of our praise songs. They'll bow down and cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. Amen? That's our Savior. That's the servant. Isaiah looks ahead. Paul looks back. Paul looks back and he says, uh, let me tell you about the unexpected servant. Paul says uh, he laid aside his status. He, he laid aside who he was. In fact, this is how it reads in the message. Think of yourselves, as of Philippians 2, the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantage of that status no matter what. You see, we love status in our culture. If we have status, we want to exploit it. We want to be known by it, by, by the, the houses we live in, by the labels and the clothes we wear, by the make of the car we drive. We love status. The airlines have figured this out, haven't they? We love status. We love to be gold, platinum, executive, platinum, whatever it might be. I mean, we just love our status, don't we? The credit card companies have figured it out. I mean, you can get status with credit card companies. Uh, there, there's a florist, I'm going to come back and read that, there, there's a florist in Finland who figured it all out as well. Uh, this is an interesting flower arrangement. Uh, if, if you ladies, I mean, how many of you have a wreath on your door? A lot of you have Christmas wreaths on your door. You, you either made it or you may have paid uh, 50 100 150 maybe $200 for it. This is a very unique wreath. It was commissioned by uh, a floral company in England. It was put together by a florist in, uh, from Finland. Uh, some of the most exotic flowers and, uh, and vines on our planet have been brought there. But more importantly, you can see at the top uh, some color. You can see it more closely over here. 
14 carats worth of rubies, 7 carats worth of diamonds, and multiple diamonds scattered throughout the wreath. And uh, men, you can buy your wife this wreath for $4.3 million online today. That's status. Bought my wife a little wreath for Christmas. <laughs> right. The scriptures say that Jesus didn't even think of his status. Think of yourselves like Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantage of that status. When the time came, our Savior set aside the privileges of his deity. He was still fully God, still fully man. But he took upon himself a different kind of status. Not a status most of us would volunteer for. The status literally of a servant, of a slave. The scriptures tell us more than that. Having become man, he stayed human. He didn't even claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life. And then he died a selfless, obedient life. And the worst kind of death at that, crucifixion. I don't know I've got We're going to skip those. He gave his life in sacrificial obedience. Uh, what I was going to do with that, I was going to say, do you live according to dog theology or cat theology? Cat theology says you feed me, you care for me, you give me shelter and provide for me. I must be wonderful. How many of you own cats? I don't know why. But here's how dogs think. You feed me, you care for me, you give me shelter, you provide for all my needs. You must be wonderful. How many of you own dogs? Glory to God. <laughs> Do you live your life this way? Hey, I must be something. Or do you live your life that way? He's wonderful. Look at all he's given me. Look at who he is. Glory to God in the highest. Which do you live? He gave his life in sacrificial obedience, death even on a cross. But here's the great news. Look at the end of Philippians. But God highly exalted him, verse 9, and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name. That the name of who? Jesus. Every knee should bow. Every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So unexpected. Unexpected that the Messiah would be a servant. You see, when we look at that first Christmas, what we recognize is that the babe in the manger is really the humble king of the universe. So unexpected. You know, there are a lot of unexpected things that happen at Christmas time. A couple of years ago, I ran across this video. It shows uh, an unexpected thing that happened to folks that were flying through a company in Canada. They started off on one coast, headed to another coast. I showed this video, I think last year maybe, but indulge me once again because it really brings about and shows the unexpected at Christmas time. Watch this. Twas a night before Christmas, and all across the land, the good folks of WestJet had a miracle planned. On the eve 
before flying, the guests were in their beds. Visions of traveling danced in their heads. While out on the runway, something secret had arrived. It was left in the lounge. It was a Christmas surprise. Christmas this year, Cohen. A choo-choo train. Oh, a classic. Do you like Thomas? And what would Mummy and Daddy like for for Christmas? Big TV. Yeah, big TV. Oh, a big TV. You're looking fabulous. Well, I need you. It's okay if you just want to stare at me as well. What I need is uh, new socks and underwear. An Android tablet. Is that William beside you? And Cameron? <laughs> Some Santa boots. While the guests told their Christmas wishes to good old Saint Nick, West Jetters took notes and got ready to shop quick. It was a great rush with the two flights in the air to get all those presents. Not a moment to spare. WestJet, sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of your flight. Was everything ready? We all had to wait for the moment of truth at Carousel Eight.
guests never expected what they'd asked of St. Nick would actually appear. It was all quite a trick. A West Cheddar would say, it was more than mere fun. Miracles do happen when we all work as one. We'll give Santa the last word on this most special night. Merry Christmas to all, and to all, a good flight. Ho, ho, ho! Wow. You talk about unexpected. Can you imagine? How many of you are going to fly WestJet next time you get to go somewhere? How many of you are going to ask for socks and underwear next time you... But you know, the lesson from that is Christmas is a time filled with the unexpected. And it brings a tear in your eye to see unexpected gifts. It should bring great joy in our heart to think of an unexpected Savior who came as a servant to give his life for us. Amen. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We do come and adore you. We do worship you. We give you honor. We give you glory. We proclaim that you're King of King and Lords of Lords. And one day we look forward to be part of that massive group that will exalt you, that will proclaim your glory forever and ever. Maybe the unexpected for you today, you came on a whim or with family and, or to watch little kids up here. The unexpected could be that today you trust Jesus Christ and Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. That would be the unexpected. And so, Father, I pray this day that you will receive great glory for all you have done. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for what you've done. Spirit of God, thank you for indwelling us. We pray in your name. Amen. Bless you.